The end is near. Is anyone seeing this? The signs are everywhere. How can a man protect his family? Thinking about cleaning up that storm shelter. Are you out of your mind? From the looming tempest within himself. What's going on? I'm afraid something might be coming. Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon take shelter. There is a storm coming! What if it's not over? Hello there, and welcome back to a special edition of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. I am Lee. And I'm Spro, and we have a special guest for us today. My friend of 15 years, and a man that has put money in my pocket, this is Robert Ruggieri, joining us all the way from, where are you in Cleveland? Kirtland. The east side. East side, yeah. So you and I, Bobby, we met in 2008 when you brought a big gulp and a bottle of Jim Bean to a random warehouse on East 105th Street oh. in Glenville, Right around that time, you were a key set production assistant on Daisy Does America. You were a construction coordinator on Martians from Venus, a carpenter on The Phobic, and then you were a swing gang on Jolene. What does a swing gang do? I don't know. I don't even know. They just put these random titles on there. The swing, <laughs> the swing gang for our department is basically the group of grunts that go and they clear out all the old furniture of whatever location you're going to be filming at in the next day or two. You remove all the old furniture, you bring in whatever the set decorator and set dressers purchased, and then you like make sure it's painted to whatever they want. So we basically go in early, and then we leave uh, while they're filming and go to the next location, and then we come back and we wrap that one out and put it back together. So we just... I guess we're just swinging around. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's what you had me doing on the DiGiorno commercials. So I was swinging. You were being, I yeah, you were probably <laughs> swinging then. Sure. See, you knew. I guess. I don't know. We just didn't mess with titles. This is all 2008, huh? Yeah. And then when you and I were plotting our future fames and fortunes, you were the production coordinator of Running America, a film about two men running across America. And then you were Art Swing for Chasing 3000. But your most recent stuff, you were a consulting producer on 2022's State of the Unity, which currently holds a 9.0 rating on IMDb. You know what's not on IMDb? And correct me when the years were, but when you were doing Building the Browns? Yeah, that's not on IMDb. I don't know why. Um, that was 2019, the Freddie Kitchens year. <laughs> Infamous year. <laughs> and then you're a line producer for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Inductions, executive producer on the 2020 trending Netflix movie, I See You, starring Helen Hunt. And me. Producer. Starring me. Did you have any lines? No. I had more scenes than I should have, um, but they were all cut, rightfully so, because I was terrible. I never should be in front of the camera. And they ended up having to like kind of make it a mashup where you cut back and forth between two scenes so they can try and minimize my presence. No one said that to me directly, but I know enough to know that I ruined most of those scenes. But I don't apologize because I knew I was terrible and I told them. <laughs> um. You're the producer of the Lyndon Cardellini, Skeet Ulrich, Craig Robinson, Christian Shaw, Patrick Wolburn, so many names to name the film Austin Found, a documentary about the University Hospital's health system in Cleveland, and another award-winning documentary called G-Funk about Warren G and his relationship with hip-hop royalties such as Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Wiz Khalifa, and Snoop Dogg. Then... The Kings of Summer, which I want to get you on my other podcast, Second Chance Cinema, to talk about, because that film is great, and I hear people talking about it all the time, but I don't hear enough people talking about it. And finally, Mr. Almost 20 Years of Television and Film Experience, working with some of the best and brightest names in the industry, we get to the film we are here to talk about today. 
sandwiched right in the middle of all your success, yet the first movie you have a producer credit on on IMDb. Jeff Nichols, Take Shelter, a film I swear to God Lee and I were not planning on talking about other than Lee already mentioning randomly on the podcast how much he loved it. And I was like, I know the dude. Lee and I got together to take the Oscar away from Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. I forced him to read a bunch of screenplays from this year, and we could not agree more that Take Shelter was the best script. And I went, well, shit, I think it's about time we got Bobby on. And that leads us to tonight. So how the hell are you, my friend? Good, good, good. You just like took me on like a little time travel loop where you like took me back and I was like, oh, wait, that's when I was just doing art department stuff. That's how I broke in. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's when we met. I felt like I met you after I had a, like a modicum of success. But no, I was just the guy in the background. It's funny, too, because we did this was our second screenwriting episode. And the first one, it was kind of like, well, why should I talk about this? And I didn't know necessarily how to prove my worth in the screenwriting field. So I just took your letter that you wrote to colleges for me and I had Lee read it. He gave you a British accent as you read it. Oh, that's but... exactly. I wrote it to have a British accent. So thank you. <laughs> in my head, yeah. I always have a British accent with like a slight like a South African. Dialect. I didn't do any of that. It was it started out very noble and then became John Houseman by the end. It was terrible. Well, no, that's how you should have read it. You did the right thing. Okay, excellent. Good. I put a little fireplace ambiance behind it, just so it felt like you were sitting in a lodge somewhere. Nice. First and foremost, before we get into Take Shelter, we always ask our guests a couple of questions, just warm-up questions. What is your relationship with the Academy Awards? Do you watch them? Do you avoid them? It has, it's slightly dwindled in recent years, but like I used to be obsessive about the Academy Awards. So I was the guy that I would sit there and this is when I was still dreaming big about being in the industry and imagining myself at the Oscars. That was my night. So like nobody's allowed to bother me. I had to have the room. Usually some bourbon was involved at some point. But like over the last couple of years, I don't know, I feel like uh, I don't know if it's a kid thing or if it's just that like bitter old age where you start to realize that you haven't won an Academy Award yet. And so you're like, why am I watching this? I don't know what it is. I don't have a real reason why, but I still I mean, I still will definitely be tuning in. I'm still I still love films. I love seeing what people are making, things that I might not be aware of. So it's still a very cool event. So when you fantasized about being at the award show, I assume that you fantasized about winning an award, getting up on the stage in front of everybody. Was it for directing? No, I think it was always for writing, because as you know, I started off just as a writer, uh, constantly having things optioned, but never made that old fun game in Hollywood. So to me, it was always it was always as a writer, you know, but the audience or anyone listening does not that like I became a producer because I kept having screenplays option and not being made and producers would give me all kinds of producer speak. And I never knew who was telling me the truth or who was lying to me. And so I just figured in order to become and actually in order just to protect myself and to be able to hopefully make my own screenplays one day, I that's how I segued into producing. So and Take Shelter was that first movie, actually. Really? Yeah. So how did you get involved with Take Shelter then? So Take Shelter at the time, I was producing a lot of commercials. So I was working for a company. I think I was maybe like on year two or three of producing for television commercials. I had worked in film a lot. Some of the stuff you mentioned earlier, doing art department, stuff like that. Um, So I had pretty much worn every different hat, but I had just started producing and I actually went to a Cleveland um, Film Commission mixer, which they host once a month, maybe once every three months. 
I think they might be quarterly, where they basically throw a huge event where people from the industry all go and they mingle. And so I just happened to go on this one night um, when Tyler Davidson, the lead producer, and Jeff Nichols just happened to be sitting at a table. Somebody introduced me to them, and I think I I didn't speak to anybody else that evening. I think I just sat there, uh, the three of us, and we talked for hours about filming in Cleveland, um, what was great about it, crew base, all this stuff. And uh, as soon as that meeting ended, I got a call instantly by Tyler saying, hey, I want you to come on this and become a co-producer with me. So it was all just from going out and uh, mingling. Do they still have those mixers now? They do, actually. Yeah, there's one actually coming up, I think, soon. So where was Take Shelter filmed in the Northeast Ohio area? Well, the original, so Jeff Nichols is from Arkansas. So he wrote it for where he's from. And so he was looking for sort of um, vast, flat areas. And so his search led him further and further from my house, which I just kept trying to, <laughs> I kept trying to go, hey, there's all these great places like that out here in the east. But no, we went further and further out towards Grafton, Illyria. So I'd say 85% of the movie was filmed in Illyria. Or, I'm sorry, Grafton. Um, and that was like our main hub. We basically got all the apartments, all the crew that were from out of town, all the cast stayed writing downtown Grafton, which is, you know, it's kind of like where I live in Kirtland, small town, um, pretty much one main street where all the activity is. So everybody is kind of just like summer camp. So everybody was crashing in downtown Grafton. We filmed a couple scenes in the Elyria area, which is right outside there. And then we filmed where Michael Shannon's character works is actually Best Sand and Chardon. So that was the only day out by me. Yeah, those are the main areas, but primarily Grafton, Illyria. I just moved back to Ohio this summer, and when I found out where it was filmed, it became almost kind of like if I felt homesick, I would watch Take Shelter just so I could see the flatlands, because I went to school out that way, too. So, I mean, apart from being an amazing movie, I just, lo I just love being like, oh, I know that place. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Jolene, ironically. So Matt brought up Jolene and you would have gotten bonus points if you had put this together. But that's one of the ones that I was swing on. And uh, it was, I think, Jessica Chastain's, I think it was her first role where she was the lead. I think she had done one movie that it didn't get released for some reason. And this was like kind of her first big role was Jolene. And I was just art swing on it. So I remember working with her. And then all of a sudden, I think this was three years later when we were filming Take Shelter, which at the time, by the way, it was called Shelter. Uh, the original working title was Shelter. And then when we were accepted into Sundance, we realized that there was another movie actually called Shelter that had been released, I think, in the previous year. And so in order to not get the movies confused, they wanted to rename the movie. So there was names thrown around like Terracotta and weird, all kinds of weird names. And in the end, it just came down to Take Shelter, which I now like look back and can't picture it as just Shelter. It's Take Shelter to me, but that's what it was at the time. Well, I remember right before moving out west, one of our last conversations, either a bourbon place or a wing place, knowing us, you were sitting there and telling me about your work on Take Shelter. And you're like, there's this actress who's got red hair in the movie. And you're like, I think she's going to blow up. This is the beginning of a really big career for her. And you were right, man. So I don't know how much I knew when we had that exact conversation, but she had already filmed Tree of Life, The Debt and The Help. So three movies that were, I think maybe two of those were Academy Award nominations. So she had already backlogged these films. She filmed our movie. All four came out at the exact same time. So we premiered at Sundance, but we were also accepted into the Cannes Film Festival um, under the Critics Week competition, which means you've premiered elsewhere. It's not, you know, so it's not eligible for the Palme d'Or. But um, she had Tree of Life and Take Shelter at Cannes at the exact same time. And so that was the winner of the Palme d'Or and the winner of Critics Week. 
Um, so she all of a sudden just was like launched. So by the time we were doing the festival scene, she was beyond our reach. She was already into the Hollywood machine and we would literally only see her like on the television and then maybe at the screening. But um, yeah, she, she blew up to a different stratosphere shortly after that film was released. And I do want to talk about the writing aspect of Take Shelter. When you joined onto the project, was the script locked? The script was locked. Jeff is, um, he is such a unique talent in the sense that he just, he sees it so clearly. It's hard to explain. Some of this might sound cliche, but if you've worked on enough movie sets and you've worked with enough, and especially in the indie realm, there's a lot of directors who are fumbling their way through it. So like they know that the script is good and they know that if they have a good DP that they'll probably get something that works. But he just had such a clear vision. So I went back and reread it not too long ago and just remembered it reading just like it is on screen. Like it was very easy. And I remember the first time we sat down to do a script read, it was just literally me, Tyler and Jeff. And I think Sophia, one of the other producers, sitting at Tyler's house one evening, reading the script. And Jeff just so clearly was like, this is two shots. This is a shot of over his shoulder. And it's an insert on his on him hitting the gas pedal. And he just like knew each scene, how many setups it would be. That is so invaluable. We were doing this movie for extremely low budget. We were never allowed to say what it was because you never want to hurt your your bargaining, obviously, with, with studios and stuff. But yeah, it was such a low budget movie. And so for him to have such like a perfectly, perfectly written, I, I want to say it's simple. But it's simple in the sense that it's not overly flashy and it's not trying to be too, I don't know, it's not trying to be Hollywood. It just is what it is. It's just perfectly written. No wasted words. I think that was the first thing I said to him when I read it. I just said, this feels to me like a script that doesn't have any wasted words or scenes. Although in the end, we ended up cutting a bunch of scenes. So I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't completely accurate in that. But yeah, he's super talented. I don't know if you've seen any of his recent work, but he's continuing to crush it. So We definitely talked about loving on the show because we <clears throat> talked about Ruth Nega going up against... Who won that year? That was Emma Stone's year. It was Emma Stone, uh, Natalie Portman for Jackie, and Ruth Nega for Loving. And that could have won the Oscar, hands down. Yeah, easily. So you get on board, the script is locked. How long did it take to shoot? I think this one was really quick. Like, it's weird, because you, you brought up Kings of Summer. That one, I think, we were meeting, I think, in, like, October for that one, and we weren't even filming till the next summer. So that one, like, had an eight-month kind of down period where we got some legwork done. But for Take Shelter, I feel like we were filming within, like, six weeks of meeting. It's always nice when you don't really know much. Like, I always say, ignorance is bliss. Like, I went into this just, like, as the most enthusiastic person. Like, now... <laughs> Like if current me were like asked to do what me then did, there's no way I would be able to do it with that same enthusiasm. Like I just know too much. Like I know all the things that can go wrong. But back then I just like jumped in. I knew we had all these locations. I just drove into Grafton, downtown Grafton. I think a friend of mine had like a cousin who had sold to some of the, I don't know, had some routes on Main Street and knew some of the people. And so I just met him in downtown Grafton. He introduced me to a couple of the store owners. And I just went from business to business and just started asking everybody if we could film there. And I think people were so shocked. Nobody really knew if this was a real thing or not. But like just me as a single marching guy with enthusiasm went in, and I think, locked like 20 locations in that area within like two weeks, whereas I don't think I could ever imagine doing that again. There was just such like a, an innocence to it to me. Like I was just so excited to be working on a movie as opposed to commercials. I've been doing so many commercials. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just a matter of diving in. And then I was responsible for uh, crewing the entire thing up. So finding the best crew base that we can get at a very low rate. So we were asking everybody to work at an, the exact same rate. So the PA, the bottom rung on the ladder was making the same as the DP. So everybody was making the same amount per day, which was peanuts compared to normal rates. Um, but yet I was still, again, with that boyhood enthusiasm that hadn't been tarnished yet by years of 
disappointment that Voyage Enthusiasm convinced everybody to do it. And it was one of the best experiences ever because I think, again, Jeff was appreciative of it. I think the script was so good. And because he knew what he was doing, there wasn't a waste of time. The crew was just super happy. And every night they'd just be excited at whatever we filmed that day. And then everybody would just go party all night and then start filming again the next day. So it ended up being like one of the coolest experiences ever because, again, just ignorance is bliss. Well, I must say, like, I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but like when I talk to people in the industry, especially around this town, and we bring up your name, everybody loves to work with you because you have that enthusiasm, because you keep a good rapport with everybody. You're pretty positive for the most part, and you're a Mr. Fix-It around set. I don't know how much you feel like the industry has beaten, <laughs> beaten that out of you, but I think that enthusiasm is still resonating within the club today. Yeah, well, I mean, the people here locally, if you're talking to anyone locally, like those are my people and we've been to battle together <laughs> and I'm just a non-douchebag. I'm very anti-douchebag. I'm very anti-ego, as you know. So to me, it's like, I think everybody on a film set is important and like has a chance to do something really cool. So I think that's probably why locally people resonate with me. When I did my first film in LA, it was so weird. Like I'm the guy that even as a producer, even as the guy that had raised the money for this particular film, I was still wanting to be the first person on set, helping everybody get everything up and running and making sure everything is running smoothly. But the people that I was producing with from LA were like, oh, no, no, don't touch that. Don't, no, no. It was the weirdest thing. Like I, again, I don't know if it's just a Cleveland thing or a Midwest thing, whatever it is, just, I'd rather just like get there and get dirty and not worry about titles or prestige. Like to me, I just like jumping in and creating with people. I just think that's the coolest thing. It was weird. Like going out to LA, like people were like, oh, you're from the Midwest. Being a Midwesterner, they automatically knew that you had a pretty good work ethic yeah. about you. I don't know where like the bad work ethic comes from, like the what part of the country that is. <laughs> same thing with me. I went there and I started working on a game show as a PA, I think. And then I was immediately promoted to like stage manager within like four days. And I think somebody actually said, because you're from the Midwest, we can tell your work ethic. Like, and also, my job was just to babysit a bunch of celebrity, like D-list celebrities, and also like have like this rotating mashup of like interesting former celebrities coming in. My job was to babysit them and keep them apart from each other for a game show called I've Got a Secret. It was a really silly show, but it was a lot of fun to work on for whatever that's worth. Not to get off track, but what credits are missing for me, IMD? Because you worked with our mutual friend Paul on Nickelodeon, right? Um, yeah, I you know, I've never, probably to my own detriment, like I don't go around tooting my own horn or, you know, making sure my IMDb is up to credit or like, it's even rare I would do a podcast except with friends just because again, I'm not about like self-promotion, which again, probably hurts me all the time because everybody else is doing it. And it's probably opening up opportunities, you know, where, where I haven't, but uh, yeah, I think most of my credits are there. I think building the Browns isn't on there because I worked for the Cleveland Browns technically. So I don't know how that would work. IMDb is crazy. I mean, there's so many, like, people are putting their music video credits on there now. Like, it's everything under the sun. Commercials are going up as credits. Yeah. So you could have, like, a CVS receipt of credits with all the commercials that you worked on. Yeah, no, I, I don't <laughs> need to put commercials on there. I mean, I, for me, it's like, I'm really proud of the movies I produce. Like, and I think, I always mm -hmm. say, like, I look better on paper than I do in real life. Because if you just look at that, like, I get excited when I look back and say, okay, Take Shelter did extremely well, and I love that movie. Like, genuinely proud of that film. Um, Kings of Summer was my favorite experience I've ever had, and it's one of my favorite movies. Not just because I had anything to do with it, just because I actually love the movie itself. And then G-Funk just getting to work with Warren G and Snoop Dogg and like travel with those guys and party with those guys and be on stage. Like that's an insane thing that I'm super proud of. So yeah, I always, the things that I need on there are on there. And the University Hospitals documentary, Healing a Community. That's got to be up there too, just for prestige. I work right by UH. 
See? Corner of uh, Euclid and Mayfield selling yeah. uh, my buddy's coffee. Yeah, and I worked on a documentary for them, and now you're talking to me. So look at that. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so so spread. <laughs> you think about hospitals as the buildings in which they're located. You think about the high-tech equipment. You think about the research that's performed there. You think about the discoveries that happen there, and you think about the miracles that occur there. But all those things happen as a result of the efforts of the people within it. We're not only technically and professionally driven, but we're humanistically driven. And at our core, uh, we are people taking care of people. Spro said this earlier. Um, we've done two best original screenplay Oscar episodes where we take an Oscar away from a movie's script and give it to a different movie script. And I've, I've been watching movies my whole life, obviously, and never opened a script except maybe a Quentin Tarantino script. My wife bought me when we were still dating Kill Bill. But doing these has been kind of a trip because especially if it's a movie I've never seen before, I'm trying to picture the film and then I see the film. I sound like an idiot when I'm saying this because it's like, yeah, well, just read a book that's about to be made into a movie and it's sort of the same experience. But that's my long way around of asking, what were you visualizing? Is there a specific part of the script that you got to that you were like, I can see this happening and it's going to be amazing? And I don't know if there was an exact moment, but I think what's cool is that I immediately resonated with sort of 80s Spielberg when I was reading it. Um, that was the vibe I picked up on. And then when I met Jeff, he basically told me that's exactly what it was. So Close Encounters was basically the movie that we we used that sort of print as like what we were looking to create. So that was basically our mood board was was early Spielberg. And I think that's what I saw just and again, when I say like the simplicity of it, but then this growing tension and the movie is a slow burn. Like that's the one thing that I've always said. And that was always my again, my ADD mind being like, oh, God, this is a slow burn. Like, are people going to like wait for it? You know, but if you do, it's so worth it. But that's what I liked about it was just that it felt really simple. It didn't feel like it was trying too hard. It just was cool. The characters were cool. Everything interweaved properly. It built at the right time. And I just love the ending. So, yeah, I don't know if there was one moment. My favorite moment ever, though, in film history. It's one of those like few moments that I'll look back on and will never forget when there's so many crazy moments having worked on films. But I just remember being in the backyard of the house that we were filming at. And Jeff Nichols walks over to me and he just puts his arm around my shoulder. He was very expressive with his hands. And he just pointed and he was like, just picture it. And it was this just long backyard. So it was just field. So it just went on forever. And he was like, the people that make Avatar are going to build this humongous storm. He's like, so just picture the craziest storm ever sweeping in towards us right now. And he's like, it's just going to fill the whole sky. It's going to be epic. And it's the scene where the dog is barking and his one dream sequence and the dog snaps from the rope and attacks his arm. By the way, I found that dog. Imagine your job is to find a dog in Cleveland, Ohio that can attack your lead actor who's been nominated for Academy Awards and not hurt him. That was one of my jobs. Randomly found some people that train dogs to do just that. That's literally what these dogs do. That dog we just found, yeah, just through a Google search, I think, of local dog trainers. But he just kept telling me, like, just close your... He was like, just close your eyes and just picture it, like, done. And all of a sudden, I remember being in a 2,000-seat auditorium at Sundance for the premiere and just seeing that scene play out for the first time in all its grandeur with the surround sound and the audience around me and just remembering him saying, just picture this. And all of a sudden, I'm watching it on screen. And like that was a complete goosebumps moment that I'll never forget. That's fucking rad. I yeah. love that house, too. Did you find that house? 
I will say, Jeff was very cool about us finding everything, and he was really cool about working with everything, but he was not happy with the house that we found. So we had, I mean, imagine on a low-budget movie, asking somebody that knocks on your door to move out of their house for a month, stay at like a Motel 6, and just let us take (laughs) over. Like, it'll be fine. That's our job on a movie like that. So we had found a house, and just the fact that it kind of worked, we were like done because it's something that you just are like, there's no way. There's no way we're going to ever find somebody that we can just displace. Jeff wouldn't let it go. Jeff was like, this is not how I see it. He drove around in a vehicle by himself, up and down streets, all over Grafton, Illyria, until he found this one house. He knocked on the door and met the guy. And then me and Tyler went and had a meeting with the guy at his little picnic table in the back, which I think is actually in the movie, the picnic table. And so we had our little meeting there. We sat there and convinced the guy to let us do it. And the guy was a truck driver, so he was on the road a lot. Um, So it wasn't like a huge, I mean, telling him that we had to dig his yard up and (laughs) put a shelter inside of it was a a hard part (laughs) of the cell, but uh, somehow we pulled it off. When you are going into these people's houses, you're pretty much clearing everything out of theirs, right? You're taking pictures, clearing it out, painting, putting your own stuff in it. And then once the movie is done, you are then taking all of your stuff out, repainting it back to what the guy had, putting all of his furniture back exactly how it was, right? Like that's yes. that's it's, the fuckery. <laughs> like it's the most the... tedious thing in the world. Wow. But luckily we have- I never even books. considered that that was how it goes. Yeah, the swing gang. Now you know what the swing gang is too. The swing gang, <laughs> swing gang rolls on up with a big semi, loads everything out, literally like furniture movers. When I worked on Jolene, I literally told people, they're like, what do you do? And instead of saying I work on a movie, I was like, I'm a furniture mover. <laughs> like, <laughs> basically move furniture and occasionally I paint a wall. And so, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You kick people out of their houses. I mean, it's insane. But yet it always happens somehow and you just find the right people, cool people. But that's why they usually utilize sound stages and whatnot. Isn't it a bitch to film in somebody's house? Yeah, well, when you're filming in someone's house, you are now taking over a neighborhood. So this was more of a rural road. It wasn't as complicated, but you still have houses all over. And the second somebody starts to mow, your job is to run out there and beg them. Like there's producers who walk around with like thousands of dollars of cash in their pocket that they used to bribe neighbors. And so the thing about LA is that people always say is that in LA, everyone's aware that if there's something filming on your street you immediately go outside with a chainsaw or a blower or a mower and you try and have them come over and buy you off or if somebody parks in front of your house you can literally go and start complaining and a producer will come over to calm you down and will try and pay you off that was what i loved about cleveland is cleveland just like me at that time was completely untainted people were excited that something was filming in the area like i see you when we filmed that we filmed that in lakewood ohio there were block parties like people would literally throw block parties and they would come and hang out In Grafton, it wasn't quite like that, but there were definitely times where we were running over where somebody's mowing and asking them if they can mow in like two hours. Because if you start a scene and you have it completely quiet, and then all of a sudden, halfway through the scene, you're covering it from a different angle, but now there's a mower going. Back then, those were scenes, those would kill scenes. Now there's technology that can actually separate the audio into different channels, and now you can block that out. So there's a lot better technology now to deal with stuff like that. But yeah, sound stages, you drive into it, you control the entire area, you know that you're not dealing with any outside sound, then you're not just dealing with like just we call them bogeys random people walking up you know like everyone's curious when they see something filming they want to know what's going on you have people honking as they pass like so that's the beauty of sound stages but like there's something about filming on set you know on location where it's a lot more fun it's a lot more energy i think and there's an aura about on location there's an aura about that house yeah it all adds to the yeah to the end result which is why i say everyone's important on a film set because we had unpaid interns i think on certain films that would find a hero house and i'd be like dude you can sit in a theater 
one day and say, hey, man, I found that, you know, like, I think everyone has a chance to contribute in some way. And then again, I just I love movies so much. I know everyone doesn't share my love of movies. You guys probably do since we're doing this podcast. But um, so, you know, just to have any part in helping with a movie, I think is super cool. This whole podcast got started because I love the Academy Awards. I still do the Academy Award Oscar pool every single year just to try and shut up my family so they would pay attention to the the speeches and who is winning. And especially because when like the screenwriting awards came up, my family would check out. And I'm like, this is this is it. Is, is, this is my dream. <laughs> And so I contacted Lee because Lee loves film. And I was like, do you want to do this podcast with me? He's like, I don't really care about the Academy Awards. And I was like, great. Yin Yang. We'll have different opinions going into it. But the more that we dissect the Academy Awards, there is the popular films, the big budget films, the blockbusters now. Then there's the like high art films. And when we did an episode where we try to find the best picture of 2022, that was the year of CODA and the BAFTAs were Power of the Dog. And then we looked at Mexico and South Korea and Italy and all of their films. And we ended up finding an independent feature called Scarborough out of Canada. And it was just a little independent budget film, but it was so heavily focused on the characters that you immediately fell in love. And I feel like with the independent features, it's so much more character focused than we're getting in all these offerings that the streaming services and everything are giving us with our ADD generation, who's immediately checking out the slow boils and whatnot. What is the strength of working on indie budgets versus collecting all the coins in the world, working on big budgets and on sets where you kind of like fade into the background. Well, it's just, like, a matter, is... it's just a matter of preference. Like to me, character driven stories are my favorite because they're real. Like there's something you can actually relate to. I used to hate big budget, I still hate most, but like now I can appreciate one that actually works. But big budget, like popcorn flicks where they're so formulaic. And now you know that being a screenwriter, I can pause any one of these big budget movies and say, okay, we're 12 minutes into the movie because there's the inciting incident. There's the end of act one here. You know, like they're so formulaic that to me, it's just like, I feel like I can almost check out. Cause I'm like, okay, he's now going to go up a bunch of crazy obstacles until about halfway. And he's either going to think he won or he's not, you know, like to me, that's, they became so formulaic that like, I just couldn't even mentally stay in the game. Character dramas, you don't necessarily know where they're going. Like there's a clear arc, but they're more real, and I think it's more relatable to me, and I'm more interested in those people. I think there's more care given to dialogue and um, little characteristics. So I've just always been drawn to those. But again, going back to indies, if somebody wants to break in, even like a, a low-budget, even a short film is super expensive. Like, I keep thinking I want to shoot a short. I wrote a 20-page script. I would love to shoot it. It would probably cost me legitimately 60 grand minimum just to shoot it at even a decent level. And that's using connections and contacts, you know. And That's how much to- Spro's kitchen was supposed to cost. Really? Were you gonna use? Were you gonna use HELOC? Were you gonna use a little home equity line of credit? Where were you going there? No, I mean I paid for it out of pocket. But it was a friend. Um, it was a friend that I grew up with. And have you ever heard of a minimum quote? No. She gave me a minimum quote. This is the least it'll cost. Yeah, I said my budget is sixty. She was like, I could do it for sixty-eight. And I said, okay. And then on the paperwork, it said minimum quote. And she's like, but the 68 was a minimum quote. I thought you knew that. See, <laughs> you could have avoided all this no. hassle. You could have helped Bobby with a short film. Yeah. Dude, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I know it's cool to have a new kitchen, but like it doesn't change your happiness. You could have changed well, my happiness. Send me the script and we'll talk about it. <laughs> now I don't want to. Now I know you're broke. <laughs> your kitchen could have been a movie. Think about that every time you eat. Get your ramen noodles. That that could have been a beautiful short film that changed people's lives. Instead, you only changed your contractor's life. 
because now she's <laughs> having a sweet vacation somewhere on your dime. Yep. I feel bad for okay, bringing we can that. Keep that I in. feel bad for bringing that up. <laughs> no, that was good shit. Okay. Yeah. I've been having these dreams. They always start with a kind of storm. When I was thinking about the concept of making kind of a hybrid genre art film, um, I was searching for kind of a universal idea or thought, and it felt like out in the world there was this very palpable sense of anxiety or fear. I'm gonna build out the tornado shelter in my backyard. I could use some help. The hell you wanna do that for? This needs to be done. We carry we carry a lot of anxiety and fear and stress about about uh, you know our lives and the world around us staying on track. And I thought that was something a lot of people could identify with, and I thought it was worth making a film about. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Although I knew how I wanted the film practically to end, I didn't really know what I wanted it to say. Um, and I feel like I found that in the relationship between this husband and wife. Um, and in the question of how do we deal with this anxiety? How, how can we make it through? I didn't want you worrying about it. Well, I'm worried, Curtis. How are you paying for all that? I got a home improvement loan from the bank. How could you do that without talking to me? You have to, you have to communicate with, with your loved ones. And if you're having fears, you have to, you have to turn to the person closest, closest to you and share those feelings with them. And if they're still there when you get done talking, then you've got somebody worth keeping in your life. And um, and that's what the movie kind of, you know, became for me. You don't name drop. You don't care about any of that stuff. You love the art. The other stuff's just silly to me. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. Is it cool to hang out with somebody that you admire and respect and like have watched in films? Like, yeah, those can be like cool moments, but they're just moments, you know, like people get way too involved in the names and it's crazy. I told you about the Linda Cardellini experience, right? With Austin Fountain? Yeah. So we were in the casting phase and she was already attached, but I didn't recognize that. And I remember we were having calls for that movie for a minor part. And for a minor part in that movie, they were bringing up names that I was like, my God, that person's amazing. Like we could actually get them for like this one day role. Like I couldn't even believe that those names were achievable and they would name somebody and then it'd be like, oh no, they have no weight. They won't move the needle. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like that person would be amazing in this role and we can actually get them for our budget like that was my mentality so i was watching mad men at the time and linda cardellini was playing a character on that show and she was so amazing in the episode i watched and i was like her i want to work on a movie with her because i guarantee you no one knows her name but she's amazing and lo and behold i willed that into existence because she was the lead attached to austin found and she was one of my favorite people i've ever worked she was awesome she was just like so cool so yeah the name thing is just ridiculous a film in three minutes. It's summer. Your name is Joe. You have two friends. Well, sort of. And you all decide to run away from home. In the forests of Ohio, you build a fortress of freedom where a boy becomes a man. Rid from the stresses of the modern world, fighting the good fight against nature. The only problem? You have absolutely no idea what you're doing, the police are searching for your whereabouts, and your parents, well, let's just say they're none too happy. But at least you and your buddies get to be, if only briefly, the kings of summer. A charming coming-of-age indie comedy replete with delightful characters, a wondrous location, 
nomination and a cast that includes Nick Robinson, Alison Brie, Nick Offerman, and Megan Mullally. What's not to like? And let's go back to your favorite film, The Kings of Summer, and filming that. Where was that filmed at? Kings of Summer, a lot of it was filmed, as I'm sure you know, at my wife's brother's house. So my wife's brother, when he was 14, same age as the kids in the movie, he actually built a A-frame house in the woods behind where they grew up. And now he had just happened to move to this house that had like a half mile driveway in North Olmsted uh, off of State Road. So it was a huge driveway. So it was like you got away from all the houses that were right on the main road. And it was like a half mile driveway back to where the house was set back in the woods. And so it was just like the perfect kind of almost like mini little studio lot where we were away from all the crazy noise. We were away from lawnmowers. And it was just he had like 10 acres of woods behind him. And he had actually cleared out an area of it to try and build an organic garden and had not gone through with it. And so it started to grow back, which is exactly exactly what the movie called for. So I ended up sending the art department to my in-laws house. They tore down the house that he had built 40 years ago or 30 years ago when he was a teenager. And they brought that over the framing and they used that in his new backyard to actually make the house in the movie. So that was where the main part of it was filmed. And then the rest was just every cool Metro Park area around Cleveland. I mean, it was really a love letter to the Metro Parks because it was it wasn't just one. It was probably, I think, maybe eight different Metro Parks we filmed at, um, including the Polo Fields and Chagrin Falls. Just a few, it's a few miles off of of like the main street but if you like just turn this one corner all of a sudden it's this huge like they do a lot of um horse shows there um, but there's like a horse trail that goes around back and so i used to go to these polo fields it's right where the uh, river like streams through and i would just go to this quiet area where i would just block out all the noise and i would just try and visualize what locations we still needed what you know who was coming into town you know that's where basically I got all my thinking done. And it ended up being like one of the main locations in the film as well, because I was sitting there staring at the trees and I was like, wait, Jordan was asking for like, do we have an area in Cleveland where there's these huge trees where he wanted the snakes going to be found? So we ended up shooting there because that just happened to be my office away from my office. Um, but yeah, Metro Parks all over. Just beautiful, beautiful. I mean, we've known that growing up here, but yeah, it was a chance to show the world. One that's funny, too, because I think like most our audience is very national. Like we have a lot of listeners in California, obviously. But I think like when people think about Cleveland, they obviously think about the river catching on fire. Right. That's so like our claim ago. to fame. So long. <laughs> but the reason why the EPA exists, you know, so you're we, welcome. Yeah. Not, yeah. Still complaining, people. But I think the one thing that people don't know is that we cherish our park system, which we call the Metro Parks, which Bobby was just talking about. There's just these large swaths of land that we don't develop in, and it's just forest upon forest. They separate cities. They separate suburbs from each other. Cleveland isn't just a burning river. It is beautiful forest, which, my gosh, the fall season in Cleveland is just it can't be beat with all the leaves. They're starting to look like toothpicks now. It's that sort of time of year, unfortunately. But Yeah, this is where it backfires. It backfires on us right about now where everything is just dead and desolate. But we're like, excited about Thanksgiving and Christmas and the New Year's and, and football championships and all that stuff. And then as soon as all that stuff's gone, then it's like, fuck. Yeah, three months. Well, then you got the calves. Three months of just hell. I'll take it over the the fucking desert. I'm so happy. 110 degrees, yeah. And that's where, again, that's where we filmed Jolene was right in Arizona. I remember we had to... I just remember it being like 130 degrees inside that truck as I was a, a glorified furniture mover and just like just that dry heat. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. So everyone is awake at like 430. Like your rush hour is 430 in Arizona just to try and beat the heat. That's how hot it is. But one thing about Cleveland, don't you think that people have an idea of Cleveland probably based off of just that one thing or they think of the industrial or like the ongoing narrative is always like, oh, this is like blue collar, grab your lunchbox and work hard or whatever. But the reality is, is that Cleveland is a lot of really wealthy suburbs. 
And so it's all surrounding there is all this, like from that early industrial boom was all this wealth. And so there's beautiful suburbs all over the Cleveland area and all these beautiful parks. And that's the part of Cleveland that people don't associate with, you know? So to me, being from Cleveland, I never thought of us as like just the industrial hardworking people. I always thought of it as like a very metro park, beautiful green area. I mean, we were called Forest City forever, you know? So yeah, I always think about the montage at the beginning of Major League. So That's how people think about Cleveland with, you know, burn on big river, you know, and it's just showing plant after plant after steel manufacturing plants and whatnot. Yeah. And then I think the next film that really took off about Cleveland set in Cleveland was American Splendor. Yeah. And that did us no favors, right? Yeah. <laughs> so That's like... on my IMDb credit for casting. Really? It should be. Did I miss it? I think I just did like background casting for one day with, with a local casting director. Um <laughs> I thought I was on there. Maybe I didn't make it on that one. I don't know. But that's right when I was starting to freelance was when that was filming. So a lot of the people I ended up becoming really good friends with all worked on that film. And I loved that movie. I thought that was such a great movie. Yeah. Did you get to meet Paul Giamatti? No, we were just literally casting for like bit part characters, you know, the waiter that comes up or somebody small. But I remember being super excited about that. Now, the first movie I was actually ever on was filmed here was Welcome to Conwood, Russo Brothers. That's how I got onto a movie set was a friend of mine was like, hey, they're looking for people to be in this polka dancing scene. So I... I just showed up, got dressed in some 70s garb, and I ruined a take by looking at the camera, and I got yelled at <laughs> in front of everybody. But by the Russo brothers? Yeah. No, no, no. By the assistant director. First AD runs the set, yells at everybody, tells everyone where to be. There was a dolly tracking shot all the way around this gymnasium where they had turned it into like a 70s polka dancing scene. My job was to walk towards camera and lean down and ask your girl to dance right as the camera's like tracking past. So I must have had my eyeline too high or something. I don't know. Whatever it was, he just started yelling not to look at the camera. And I immediately looked at the guy next to me, like, as if being like, dude, seriously, like, you would look at the camera? Because I had to go walk back to the post and sit next to Patricia Clarkson, who was one of the leads in that movie, and Jennifer Esposito, Sam Rockwell. Like, they were all, we all started off, like, leaning on the same pole. So I wasn't about to do the walk of shame back as if I had been the guy to look at the camera. I was just looking, I was just shaking my head like, I can't believe this is what we have around here. People that look at the, you know, it's hard to find good extras. Yeah. So if you go back in time and watch that film, if you watch the polka dancing scene, the beginning tracking shot, you'll see me walking and leaning down asking a, a girl in pink to dance. And she shoots me down. Did you have flashbacks of that when you were playing the police officer in ICU? I did like, not. Don't I don't know why I did not. I think I was just so in the character of being a cop that I just blocked everything out. But I also ruined the first take of that scene. So as... <laughs> God, I'm starting to see a trend here. This is all coming out real time. The first take, nobody told me how you're supposed to... The first scene I'm in, as a cop, we're walking. They have, like, strobe lights. We're in the middle of the woods at night. It's dark. We have these huge, like, lights up in the sky. We have all these extras. And there's just this trailer in the middle of the woods, and we're all approaching it as a tactical unit would. And uh, nobody told me how to hold my gun. And they also told me to walk cut in front of the window uh, to the right and hide behind a tree, like, once I got close enough. And, and <laughs> start the scene. And, hey, I'm holding my gun wrong. So, like, about five seconds into, like, walking my little walk towards the thing, they yell, cut. You literally call me out, yell at me, show me how to hold the gun properly, <laughs> which you're supposed to have. You're supposed to cup it by your hand. So I was supposed to be walking like that. Once I figured that out, next take. How were you holding it? Like I don't know, it? just like a gangster. <laughs> yeah, like I had just done G-Funk. I was hanging out with the gangster generation. Like I was like, yo, I'm going to pop a cap in him. Um, that's not how you do it. You got to have it your hand cupped. So then the second take, I'm supposed to cut in front of the window, but I'm sitting there picturing as if there's a real guy in there. Like, you don't know. Like, if this was a real life, that guy could pop up, you know, and just start shooting at me. I wasn't going to walk in front of the window, so I decided to fan left, uh, which felt safer. 
<laughs> and uh, they let it slide. <laughs> I think he already knew by that point he was going to have to cut the scene because of me. But um, yeah, but I'm in the approaching scene too. You can probably tell which one I am by how bad I look. I'm going to ruin the movie for a lot of people. <laughs> it's a very climactic moment. I mean, the kid that goes missing in the beginning is at stake. Justin Witter, 10 years old. Went missing on a bike ride last night near Jupiter Park. Park Ranger found the bike. Oh, boy. I'll let you manage the situation as you see fit. You lead on this. Got it. Michael King went missing just... Authorities are now telling parents of young children to keep them close and on time. There's something up here! You're gonna find him. I enjoyed the shit out of that movie. It's just wild that it was filmed in Lakewood. I don't want to put you on the spot, but, um... Whenever we talk about these Oscars, the the Oscars for scripts, Spro gets very upset because he doesn't believe that members of the Academy are reading these scripts before they're voting on them. And you can sound off on that if you want, but I was going to ask you, despite maybe not having read any of these other scripts, if we took Take Shelter out of the equation, if any of these other ones jump out at you, The Artist, Bridesmaids, Margin Call, A Separation, Shame... Uh, young Adult, The Iron Lady, 50-50, win-win. And Midnight in Paris, if you well, want to yeah, talk about that. Well, yeah, Midnight. Well, Midnight in Paris was the winner. Midnight in Paris was a fucking horrible script. We do our, I don't know if you read it. Because <laughs> we do our top three, and uh, both of our number ones were the same, both of our number twos were the same, but our number threes were different. This is after having read them? Yeah, this fucker made me read all of them. And That's then a lot I don't of think... time, man. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I don't have any actual I feel lame. I haven't read all of them or even seen most of them. I'm still kind of stuck in that weird kid area where my kids are younger. And so like for a right. while, I steered away from the films. And I'm just now starting to get back into like watching mainstream cinema and getting back into what I used to originally love. It's amazing how quickly you shift into a world of like cartoons again. And like Disney movies are treats when you're a parent. Um, <laughs> so I don't have anything to add to this except 50-50 I thought was cool. I think I dropped a little salt water once or twice reading that oh, one. Oh, well, yeah. There's nothing like dropping a little salt water, you know, to remind you you're still alive. It's been <laughs> a minute since I've done that on a script. Was there any buzz? Like, was anybody ever like, this is going to get fucking nominated? Like, people are going to talk about this movie and then we're going to keep hitting the circuits. It won this. It, what did you say it won at the can? The critics. Yeah. I don't know. I think we all felt a buzz about that one, but none of us knew what it would do. I think just getting into Sundance to me, like to me, I had already won. My biggest, just so you know, my biggest goal was to have a film at the Cleveland International Film Festival. So I used to work on the, the teaser that would play before every movie. Um, as a freelancer, we would all dedicate our time. We would do it for free. So we would get passes so that we could see every single movie at the film festival. So I used to just spend my entire day, my entire week, I was there. I would literally watch every film I could. I would eat Sparrow Pizza in between with a notebook, taking notes on which films I liked. That was my goal. So when we got into Sundance, I was already like, what the hell? Like that already <laughs> exceeded my expectations. So that one just blew me away by how well it did. I don't think I meant to continue on the producing trail, but when you have a movie playing the way that that movie was, we were just going from festival to festival and we would have meetings. So now all of a sudden, 
people wanted to send us scripts. And so it was actually at the Toronto Film Festival. Tyler and I were there for that film. And we read a script called Toys House at the time um, on our Kindles. We were the only two producers that didn't have iPads yet. Everybody else did. But we sat on our Kindles, paging down, 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 down as we read. And we'd be sitting across from each other at Starbucks, about to have a meeting. And we're reading the script. And we're laughing out loud, going like, wait, what scene are you on? And we would sit there and go back and forth. Fell in love with the Biagio character from Kings of Summer, which is why we both wanted to make this movie. We felt like he was going to be the next McLovin, like literally a character that was so quirky that they would just kind of create their own stratosphere. And so fell in love with that script so hard that I knew I wanted to be a part of making that one. And so that's why I produced the second one. And then I think, again, I still saw myself as a screenwriter who was producing. And then, you know, you just keep going. Like I was producing commercials and stuff at the same time. I just switched to directing. I think in like 2016, I started directing. Um, I don't know if there was buzz. Like Kings of Summer, to me, I just thought that was going to be a huge hit. We were producing it with the team that had made Little Miss Sunshine, which is a movie that I had loved. I thought that the director was super talented. Jordan, our director, had only done a short film up until that point, but it was hysterical. It was called Successful Alcoholics. It premiered at Sundance. Um, it's what got him in with the Little Miss Sunshine team. But like I watched that 30-minute movie um, and was blown away and just really wanted to be a part of this one. So this is the one that I went in again. This is the first one where I was going out there trying to reach out to investors. And so I was so enthused that I had created this manifesto. I think I called it my Creed Manifesto saying why I thought this movie was going to be so big, how I knew it was going to premiere at Sundance. In my head, it was a lot bigger. <laughs> In my head, it was good. It did a lot better than I think it was going to. This is one of those movies that like just didn't get the big release. They were really hoping that because we had young actors that it would kind of be like a one of those like word of mouth spread and continue on. And in a way it did, but I think it did way after the fact. So like we never saw this like huge return. Um, still, it was a it was a victory for us. Like the movie sold for more than we made it, which is always huge and was playing in all the major film festivals. we got theatrical releases. I mean, to me, I, we were still on top of the world at that point. But uh, my niece was in Spain and she was out to dinner with some guy who's a student in England. And sh she mentioned me because he he wants to do film and uh, brought up Kings of Summer. He's like, that's actually a class at King's College. They teach it as a coming of age class. So to think that that was just this little movie that we filmed here in the Metro Parks. And now it's actually taught as a coming of age class in England somewhere is pretty interesting. It's just <laughs> nutty to me because the take shelter budget estimated was more cost more than the estimated budget for margin call. And well, what, I'm curious to think what you think the budget of take shelter was, because there's probably something in IMDb or somewhere that you researched it. But I guarantee you it's not the real number. Uh, it's estimated at just shy of five million. Yeah, so that was our speech. So we would say five million just to try and help us out in negotiations, but our budget was nine hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars. Wow. Do you want that bleeped? No. <laughs> I mean, I would hope we're far enough removed from it. This was in 2011. But no, our budget was $937,000. Now, we did a lot of deals where we gave away ownership for some of those deals. So we paid 10 cents on the dollar for the you know special effects, but they also then owned a percentage of it. You know, So um, we did a lot of creative producing. Well, Tyler really did a lot of creative producing on that. But yeah, no, at the time, our budget was extremely low, which is why we had crew working at all fixed rates. All the actors worked at scale. It was really just meant to be a film that people were super passionate about, which again, is probably why I was so passionate about it. It was a bunch of people who weren't doing it for the money. They were just doing it because they loved the project. 
the score for that film my wife bought. She loved it so much, the Dave Wingo score. It's unbelievable. Um, That's fucking amazing. Just like Jessica Chastain, he launched. I mean, after that, like, again, all these people did this movie, like, just so that it's stated clearly, for Jeff Nichols. Like, when people believe in a storyteller, they're going to come on board to be a part of whatever he's creating. And that came across in our interviews. Jessica Chastain had already seen Shotgun Stories, his first movie. He made that for 50 grand. He literally talked Michael Shannon into it. He was his own PA. He picked he picked up Michael at the airport. The two of them drove to and from set. They literally put all their money into the lenses just so that it would look beautiful. And when they finished the movie, he told me that the movie was came in at like 67 minutes. And then he just went and shot beautiful, like scenic shots that were like little textural small town moments that kind of weaved the story together, which ended up being beautiful and perfect for the film. So again, like all these people do it because Jeff Nichols is just so talented and you can see people were right. Like he's gone on to have an amazing career i was saying this to spro too i um on the episode when we were talking about it this was a trailer that i caught right around the time that i joined reddit and reddit movies used to be a lot less toxic but they would they would share things be like hey this is in the in the festival circuit right now it was kind of like how i kept my thumb on the pulse so to speak and i saw the trailer and this was back when i had um we were living in this tiny ass little cupboard apartment i think it was like 600 square feet and i had hooked up our little laptop to a projector so that just one whole wall of our tiny apartment was we would watch hockey up there we would have movie night but I threw that on and watched the trailer for the first time on this the giant projector screen. And I'm a sucker. Like, if a trailer is intriguing, then I'm like, oh, shit, this movie's going to be fucking rad. And I get, I get duped more often than I would like to admit. Yeah. And, and that one did not dupe me. That one delivered. I agree with you, dude. If I see a good trailer, mark that on the calendar, and it's as good as going to a wedding for me. Like, it will be just treated the same way, where it's like, we know that on this weekend, you know, that there's no other plans to be made because we're going to a wedding, or in this instance, we're going to this film that, like, I think is going to be so cool. Um, It doesn't happen all the time, but yeah. And a lot of times, you're right. Those filmmakers have tricked you and shown you the best two minutes, and they, you know, they're not going to tell you that the other 88 to 100 aren't great, but... Yeah, my first meeting with a Hollywood producer, we were talking about Last Story of David Allen, and we both were just so excited about the Brick trailer and how yeah. that was put together. Yeah, yeah, we were at your fourth wall building, right, at night, when we <laughs> yep. go up in my bourbon. And uh, yeah, I remember talking to you about, like, I see this movie like Brick, because your writing was very quick and funny, but also hip, you know, like, and I just thought that Brick was the same kind of vibe. Before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? Anything that you're working on right now that you want to tell the audience? Well, as you know... That you can tell the audience? You and I have uh, teamed up and worked on a movie called Hollis um, about the boys that started uh, commercializing hip-hop as we know it. That's an ongoing documentary that we've worked on, but we're still waiting to get to the next phase where we start going into reenactments. But we've gotten most of the main interviews with Run DMC and uh, some of the Beastie Boys and uh, some of the cool people from that era. So that's what I'm currently working on. It's one of those that's literally started and stopped twice just because of different people being involved. Again, the the frustrations of Hollywood, like young innocent me probably would have already had the movie done however it took, but like new me who's been beat up a little bit is like, nope, we got to have the right pieces in place. So anyway, that's one that is ongoing, but I, I love just because I, you know, G-Funk was really cool to me. That was my high school soundtrack, but Run DNC, uh, Beastie Boys and All Cool J was my uh, grade school soundtrack. I even took break dancing in fourth grade at a Jewish community center which, as you can imagine, probably creates some amazing results in my dancing skills. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm the qualified person to tell this story based on a little tidbit of information, and so I don't know why the world would want to see that. (laughs) 
Yep. So that's that's the one. Um, but yeah, another one that I was working on, uh, the strike kind of killed it. So I'm not going to talk about that one because I don't want to jinx it. But now that the strike is over, happy days ahead, I hope. Well, nice. I mean, I'm so happy to, one, we don't get to talk as much as I would like and to. And we never talk sober either. Like, this might be our longest <laughs> talk we've ever had. Like, do you think you and I have actually sat in each other's presence without some kind of bourbon, bourbon in front of game? us? No. I only drink bourbon with you, my friend. So this is what it's like when we don't drink. Interesting. It wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't yes. terrible. I mean, I feel like I would have been more <laughs> I would have been a lot more interesting with a couple glasses of bourbon, but uh, that's Bourbon Bob. That's not really me. And so I feel like that, again, would be misleading like a trailer, you know? Mm. Bourbon Bob says all the right things at all the right times. I mean, I my wife will disagree, and so will many others, but to me, he's the guy. Maybe a future episode we'll get Bourbon Bob on. You should, yeah. You should be like, you've heard from his alter ego, but now we're going to meet the real man. <laughs> The guy who actually does the heavy lifting and makes the midnight phone call drunk to L.A. and convinces people to do ridiculous things. He's probably <laughs> actually the producer in me. I'm probably more the writer. And then Bourbon Bob is the producer who just like has this liquid courage to just call people and tell them what's going to happen. And then people are like, OK. And then I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, that worked. That's how most of my stuff gets made. So you should drink more often with me, Spro. I don't drink often. No. Or with me ever. Next podcast. Yes. Or, I agree. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or you want to take us out there, sure. Lee? Well, Bob, Bobby, Robert, thank you so much. It was nice <laughs> to meet you. And if you uh, find yourself in University Circle, come see my wife and I on the corner of Euclid and Mayfield. Grab a cup of the best coffee that Cleveland has to offer, Odd Dog Coffee. They are an unofficial sponsor and a good friend of the show. Thank you for coming on to talk about Take Shelter. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Sorry I didn't have more information about uh, screenplays, current screenplays, or anything actually That's current. All right. That's all right. That's okay. <laughs> or anything relevant at all. But I just, uh, it was really <laughs> nice to talk to you guys because uh, I've canceled therapy and I needed to talk to somebody. So thank you for taking the time. <laughs> Likewise. And, uh, yeah, just send me an invoice whenever you're ready. For Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, I am Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are ready. That storm shelter out back. I've been having these dreams. They always start with a kind of storm. I'm afraid something might be coming. I'm doing it for us. I know you don't understand. You're right, I don't understand! I don't understand. He's staying up all night in that stupid tornado shelter.